If you travel to the province of Hainau in Belgium and you make your way to the town of Marcinelle in the municipality of Charlois and then to a street called Rue de Philippeville, you'll find a garden. This garden is surrounded by white stone walls and it sits between two houses. And there's a mural of a child watching a kite soar into the sky painted on the side of one of the houses. The garden was opened in September of 2023 and the inauguration was sparsely attended. And it's dedicated to the memories of Julie Legion and Melissa Rousseau. Their dads laid wreaths at the site and they spoke to the press afterwards. Gino Rousseau, Melissa's father, told the press. This is part of Belgium's history. We have to remember this. It's a historic event. I'm not saying that because she's my daughter. I'm saying it because it's true. Julie and Melissa were victims of a serial killer and a pedophile called Marc Dutroux. The garden marks the site of the house where both girls had been held for a time before being moved elsewhere and murdered. Dutroux led police to the Marcinelle property after he was arrested in 1996 and he showed them the dungeon that he built in the basement. Two other victims were found there alive. Discreetly placed near the end of most of the press clippings about the opening of the garden, granted at most, you know, a line or two, is mention of a demand that Gino Rousseau made to the Belgian authorities just before Dutroux's house in Marcinelle was torn down. Rousseau told them to preserve the dungeon beneath the site intact in case any future police investigations take place. What he meant by this is usually not elaborated on in the press clippings. So Dutroux came to be called the Monster of Belgium. And by the time he made international headlines, uh, Belgium itself was staggering under the accumulated weight of years of strange, frightening events. And these events had left people traumatized and unable to trust any of the institutions that were supposed to reassure them that they lived in a modern, sophisticated, democratic state. Now, some people in Belgium said these things had happened because the kingdom was such an important strategic piece in this great game between two worlds, you know, the so-called free capitalist West and the communist East. Other people said that bad men had simply done bad things, you know, the same as anywhere else. So it was best to trust the system and its processes and gather your family a little closer each night because what else can you do? And then after Dutroux was arrested, he said, that he'd been working at the direction of a powerful network of influential people in Belgian society. And witnesses came forward. And these witnesses had information that appeared to corroborate at least parts of Dutroux's story. And on learning about the scale of the police and judicial failures here, the people of Belgium started to look at their country in a different way. And they started to question everything they thought they understood about their society. So there were protests. Thousands of people marched in the streets and demanded change. And not for the first time, there was talk of a revolution. The people brought the government to its knees. And then nothing happened. The streets eventually emptied of protesters. The Detroux affair ground on into the 21st century and he was eventually sent to prison. This brief eruption 
of insurrectionary sentiment faded. And soon, the monster stopped being the public face of much deeper and darker forces, and his insistence that he worked for this powerful network of important people was discounted as an attempt to save himself and torture the families of his victims with the idea, the possibility, that their deaths had meant something more than they really had. And he's still at it today. Uh, he's promising to write a tell-all memoir threatening to name names. The witnesses who came forward were discredited and they were left to pick up the pieces of their lives. They were pushed to the margins once again. And the disquieting loose ends surrounding Dutroux and his killing spree were quietly forgotten. And in the news coverage of the affair today, there has been a subtle but noticeable shift to emphasizing his crimes as the work of a lone psychopath acting with, at most, the hapless assistance of a handful of ragtag losers and drug addicts. And so an official narrative has developed around the case, and Mark Dutroux has become just another figure in the annals of true crime folklore. Even then, his full story is only really known to people with a particular interest in European crime and political conspiracies. Now, people in Belgium are still divided today over the Dutroux affair, but the official state and media approved narrative is just about the dominant one. And for many of the skeptics of what's called the network theory, dark talk of blackmail, you know, of managed violence and strategies of tension, uh, this is all consigned to the same mental filing cabinet as the idea of aliens living on US army bases or the earth being hollow. But those disquieting loose ends persist. And if you want to understand Mark Dutroux and what happened in Belgium in the 1990s, then you have to understand what happened in the decades before he erupted into the national consciousness. This monster, Dutroux, he arrives near the end of our story. But by following those loose ends surrounding the affair, you can find other monsters in the years before him. Belgium is a place that has experienced a century and a half of colonial expansion and collapse, two world wars, conquest, occupation, security state abuses and political stagnation and corruption. Those are the monsters, the ones that came before Dutroux. They carried out suburban massacres and planned coups and assassinations. They stoked UFO panics and financed Nazi paramilitary groups. They ran drugs for the CIA. They committed armed robberies and they sanctioned terror bombings. The connections between these events are sometimes murky and sometimes they're only indirect. But those connections are there if you want to look closely enough. And they all happened in a country where the state has consistently struggled to establish its own legitimacy and the resulting institutional cracks have given these monsters space to thrive. These are the Belgian X-Files. I had a dream about this place.
Like I said, the true arrives at the end of this story that we're telling here. And friend of the show, Nick, he's going to be joining us midway through this series to add more insight and detail. But for now, it's just us. And we are going to rewind all the way back to the end of World War II. So start on August 11th, 1950. And this is when King Leopold III abdicated um, in favor of his son, Baudouin who would eventually take the oath of office and become king a year later. This was Belgium's answer to a very long political crisis known as the Royal Question. The Royal Question stemmed from Leopold's actions in World War II. You see, as the Nazis took over Belgium, Leopold, who'd assumed full command of the army, refused to join the Belgian government in exile. Now, the Belgian government and the king disagreed over whether the German invasion violated Belgium's official policy of neutrality and made them part of the Allies by default. The government believed it did, and they wanted to join up with the British and the French and allow their troops into the country to support the fight against the Nazis. But Leopold disagreed. He wanted to negotiate a surrender and abide by a policy of neutrality. Leopold's position was reflected in the Belgian establishment, especially the pro-monarchist elements. In the build-up to World War II, and during the occupation of Belgium itself, they adopted what we might call a hard-headed strategic pragmatism towards the Nazis. Remember, this was a ruling class that believed it was faced with destruction through the early part of the 20th century, especially through the 1930s from the communists and the rise of socialism. They fucking despised the commies and the Soviet Union, and many of them felt the monarchy was the only true bulwark against a socialist revolution. So to this end, they financed a number of far-right networks whose sole purpose was anti-communism. And then as the Nazis rolled up Europe, the Belgian establishment felt that France had proven itself an unreliable partner, you know, given the speed of its collapse uh, when the Germans invaded. And this hardline elite in Belgium was also acutely aware that there was no possibility of another brave little Belgium story of triumph against the odds, you know, like there had been in World War I. To put it crudely, the Belgian establishment assessed the situation and they decided the Nazis were best for stability and best for business. So Leopold surrendered in May of 1940, and this was just after 18 days of fighting, and he became a prisoner of war voluntarily at the Royal Palace in Brussels. Now, to begin with, this endeared him to many people in occupied Belgium, ordinary people like you and me, because they viewed him as a martyr-like figure who'd volunteered to stay in the country and share his subjects' suffering. There was another part of Belgium that saw him as a collaborator and a coward, and we'll get to this in a little while. 
So the royal question begins here, and this would come to expose deep divides in Belgian society, one of many things that will come to expose these divides. It should be pointed out that at a surface level, surface level read, given the blitzkrieg assault of the Nazis and their overwhelming firepower and strength in 1940, Leopold's decision to surrender isn't especially shocking or nefarious, you know, at a surface level read, because nobody in Belgium or France or the Netherlands at the time, none of the, nobody could have foreseen the Nazis being defeated within like four or five years. To a lot of people, they seemed invincible. So we'd be remiss not to mention that while the decision to surrender is not per se evidence of Nazi sympathies, Leopold did have a plan to safeguard himself and his heirs. See, he was quite taken with the concept of the Nazi New Order in Europe, and he tried to negotiate with Hitler to ensure that he would remain head of a sort of client state in Belgium if the Germans won the war. And this was in keeping with what he saw as his crucial role as an interlocutor between the Nazis and his subjects. This is from Peter Legrue, quote, Leopold envisioned a political future not unlike Pétain's role in France under German acquiescence. His ambitions were never realised only because of a lack of approval by Hitler. The Belgian government had fled to France in the hope of continuing the war. After the French defeat, it fell into despair and tried to organise its return to the occupied country. Popular support during these months was on the king's side, and the government was largely repudiated. Now, failing... Um, being kept in place if the Nazis won. Leopold was also amenable to the view expressed by some of his inner circle that Belgian democracy had failed. It had proven itself to be a busted flush. And even if the Nazis were defeated, Belgium should resist a return to elections and democratic representation. And instead, it should become a modern absolute monarchy with Leopold ruling as a kind of um, enlightened despot. It has quite a lot in common with, you know, like the Middle East autocracies and uh, monarchies that we see today, this, this concept that they had in mind. Now, again, this sentiment, it was shared across the Belgian establishment, um, although many of the establishment members felt that the best outcome to the war would be a peace agreement between Britain and the Nazis, with Belgium being absorbed into a German sphere of influence. Leopold could stay, he might not, you know, that wasn't a deal breaker. One of Leopold's advisors, uh, Henri Dumont, he was a socialist politician and union organizer. He was also a Nazi collaborator. And he advocated a very strange hybrid of a socialist planned economy and an absolute monarchy. And his wartime scheming eventually put him at odds with the communists, the socialists, the liberals, resistance fighters, and fellow Nazi collaborators, particularly the Flemish nationalist factions, some of whom were also resistance fighters. Again, we'll get to this in a second. Uh, he ended up being tried in absentia for treason, and he died in exile. We are going to be getting to Belgium's unique regional and cultural divides pretty soon because they play a role in almost all the history that we're going to cover over the next few months. So, the king surrendered 
and elements in the Belgian security services and, you know, captains of industry, particularly the more pro-monarchy, anti-communist types, they figured they could use the new management to its benefit, you know, the Nazis. This is from Rudy van der Slaar, who writes, quote, The files of the police des étrangers had no secrets for the German police. In Liege, both the mayor and the public prosecutor supplied the Germans with lists of local militants. The evidence we have collected suggests that until the Soviet Union's entry into the war, the occupying forces could count on considerable help from Belgian magistrates and from certain police units. The indirect contribution they made by supplying information on militants was quite in keeping with the prevailing atmosphere in the Belgian administration during the first year of the occupation. As late as October of 1941, a report drawn up by Colonel Detiz, the commandant of the gendarmerie, argued that the Communist Party, the terrorist groups, which may be the same thing as the party, the VNV, which was the Flemish National Union, and Rex, which was the Rexist Party, a far-right corporatist Catholic party that was active between 35 and 45, all represented a threat to state security. By deciding to stay at their posts in the administration, the economy, the magistrature and the police, the leading figures in the Belgian establishment were opting for what they saw as a continuation of the pre-war policy of neutralism. In other words, they chose what they believed to be the lesser evil, the Nazis. Their policy of independence and neutralism was not, however, simply an expression of their desire to take a neutral stance in the international conflict between Germany, France and Great Britain. It was an ideological position designed to promote the political, economic and cultural influence of Germany. And throughout the occupation, hostility to the exile government was fueled by these elements and they exerted influence to channel support to the king in the hope that Belgium would be directly ruled by a strong monarchy after the war, regardless of whether the Nazis won or lost. Now, an example of how they did this can be found by looking at one Marcel Derouve, who was a, a Belgian industrialist who helped found and lead the um, Rassemblement National et Social des Anciens Combattants. Uh, this was one of the, the larger underground resistance armies formed in the immediate aftermath of the German invasion by De Ruwe and his allies. The Allied forces, the Allied powers, they ended up recognising it as the official resistance. In the English-speaking world, we know it better as the secret army. That's what we know it as. Uh, but in its first year or so of existence, at least until the summer of 1941, it was focused primarily on anti-communist operations, not necessarily on anti-Nazi activity. And Deruva helped to forge links between state security outfits and far-right political movements, as well as private networks in the Belgian establishment. Put a pin in that term, private networks, you'll be hearing it again. Ultimately, the goal of guys like De Ruwe was to ensure that whether the Nazis won or lost the war, as we've said, Leopold, or, you know, to be more accurate, the Belgian monarchy, uh, would survive intact and would be strengthened. Now, De Ruwe was one of many Belgian industrialists who'd been patiently building these private networks of influence in the anti-communist and far-right underworld all through the 1920s and the 1930s, and he would eventually become a member of the World Anti-Communist League. 
your antenna should be perking there. These right-wing resistance networks hadn't anticipated a growth in support for the left wing of the Belgian resistance, and they certainly hadn't seen that it would be accelerated by Leopold's decision to marry Lillian Bales in December of 1941. This may seem like, you know, a trivial soap opera-ish bit of the story, uh, but this is a, a big part of the royal question because Leopold's choice of wife did a lot of damage to his popular image. You know, suddenly this image of the loyal king selflessly making profound sacrifices for his subjects, you know, a concept that his supporters had done so much to sell people on. It took a major hit. And as with everything else, this also divided Belgians and inflamed tensions around the royal question. You know, some people were supportive of it. Some people were opposed to it. Some people were totally indifferent. Um, and Belgium was a country under severe strain already. So, you know, this was the, it was just one more straw on the camel's back, um, to put it mildly. Again, from Legru, um, quote, the integrity of the national territory, the rule of law and democracy proved defenseless in the face of foreign occupation and domestic treason. This disintegration crowned the process of decay observed by many during the 1930s. So what, in essence, what we're saying is that Belgians under Nazi occupation had, again, put their collective faith in a national institution, in this case, the monarchy, the suffering martyr king who shared your pain and so on. And this was during a time of, you know, acute national crisis, which was the Nazi occupation, and they were left feeling betrayed and abandoned once again. And this has been a recurring pattern in Belgian history ever since its creation, its founding. The state and its various institutions have consistently failed to establish their legitimacy in the eyes of huge numbers of the population. Um, not to sound too blunt or cruel, but Belgium as a sovereign entity, it only really exists because the great European powers of the mid 19th century, especially Britain, needed and wanted a buffer state between France and the rest of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, now, yeah, there was the Belgian Revolution and whatnot, but it was undertaken with the blessing of those great powers, you know. And then since the ascension of Leopold I in 1831, Belgium has come to occupy a very, very strange place in European geopolitics. It is at once a weird colonial plaything of more influential countries you know it's riven by domestic division and political stagnation and it's an aggressive murderous colonial power in its own right leopold i was chosen to be king of the belgians in fact at the urging of the brits because he was a relative of the british royal family um We'd only just entered our peak, draw random lines on maps and get the closest available stooge to be king of wherever, uh, imperial form, you know. So Belgium is established and a thick tangle of patronage networks developed in the hastily thrown together political and social institutions of what was now called the Belgian state. And many of Belgium's current problems right up to the present day they have been around in some form ever since its founding as a result of these networks who persist, you know. And this is from Belgium is a Failed State by Tim King. Quote, 
Belgium has the trappings of Western political structures, but in practice, those structures are flawed and have long been so. Belgium came late by Western European standards to statehood, as in Italy, another latecomer, there were already existing allegiances to the locality, and although Belgium's liberal elite threw off Dutch rule in 1830, it could neither uproot nor supplant attachments to the local community, often intertwined with the Roman Catholic Church. So the formal structure of a Belgian state was erected, but framing within it the cultural, social, and welfare structures of the church's state within a state, that was followed in due course by the development of a socialist labour movement with its rival structures for mutual assurance, cultural associations and newspapers. Ranged against the Christian Democrats and the socialists were the anti-clerical and middle-class liberals who constituted the third corner in Belgium's political triangle. They did not have the same popular support nor the equivalent social structures. Belgium's linguistic differences between Flanders, the Dutch-speaking North, and Wallonia, the French-speaking South, with a small German-speaking enclave in the Southeast, added extra layers of complexity to public service, particularly in and around Brussels, which was eventually designated as a bilingual region. Parallel structures were created to cater for the different language groups. <clears throat> so, Roughly about 59% of Belgians speak Dutch, roughly, and they are almost exclusively Flemish and live mostly in the north of Belgium. 40% uh, speak French and they are concentrated in the south. Um, and then to the, yeah, to the southeast, there's a small community of German speakers. And naturally, these linguistic and cultural divides and patronage networks that have sprung out of them they have created quite a lot of problems, especially when, say, I don't know, for the sake of argument, a massive corruption scandal erupts and it transcends these regional lines um, and different police forces and magistrates and investigators have to speak to each other and pull information. You know, it grinds everything to a halt. This very shaky sense of national identity in part drove Belgium's colonialist murder in Congo. We'll get to that uh, later on in the series. And it was undermined repeatedly by events in the 20th century. Don't forget that in the space of 30 years or so, Belgians experienced World War I and the rape of Belgium, then World War II, Nazi occupation, liberation, and the royal question. All of this further undermined trust in the state's abilities, and it led to many an angst-ridden conversation of what the purpose of this national experiment called Belgium actually was. And it's through this lens that we then have to consider the Belgian resistance to Nazi occupation. Because although they were united eventually in their opposition to German rule, the Belgian resistance was not a monolith. It was composed of various factions that were very often at odds with each other as much as they were with the Nazis. There were so many different factions and groups, and they all had a different idea of what a post-Nazi Belgian state should look like. And this ran right across the spectrum from, you know, uh, communists to Republican liberals to far-right Flemish nationalist groups that in their own way were quasi-Nazi themselves, you know. So the returning government 
was confronted with a massive base of support for leftist resistance forces, you know, as the Nazis were pushed out of Belgium at the end of the war. These were the armed partisans. These were affiliated to the Belgian Communist Party, and they'd impressed many Belgians with their bravery and their organizational capabilities. So the communists found themselves, for the first time, not just tolerated, but actively supported by huge numbers of people as they worked to undermine and sabotage the Nazis. Now, despite the, the party leadership being rounded up and sent to camps by the Nazis in 1943, their base kept growing. And it grew to such an extent that the Communist Party was a genuine power in national politics for a short time after World War II. Uh, they gained, I believe, 25% of the vote in parliamentary elections, and they were able to enter into a coalition with socialists and liberals. Uh, more about this in a moment. So as a way to prevent a potentially revolutionary moment, you know, as the war turned against the Nazis, the staff in the Belgian civil service had secretly agreed to what's called the Social Pact. This was 1944, while Belgium was still occupied. Uh, it's also referred to as the Draft Accord for Social Unity. And those last two words are particularly important here. See, this was an agreement between trade union leaders, employer organizations, uh, bosses, and government officials to restore the pre-war rights and entitlements and reform other social and economic policies to expand and strengthen the welfare state. And the idea was to capitalize on this shared experience of occupation to try and unite Belgian society. Crucially, it aimed to dilute the influence of communism on Belgian politics in a less violent and direct way than that proposed by the likes of, you know, Marcel de Rouve. Nothing was formally signed into law. Uh, the social pact, it was more like a, a, an agreement in principle, you know, a declaration of intent. But despite the strengthening of some workers' rights, the social pact was threaded through with this anti-communist sentiment. And despite the amount of compromise that was involved on all sides, it was still viewed as, you know, too left-leaning by these hardline factions that we've mentioned in the Belgian establishment, the Belgian ruling class. But far from representing, you know, the dawn of a, a new type of social democratic politics, a golden age, uh, a lot of historians today, they tend to emphasize how much continuity there was between pre- and post-war Belgium. Now, here's Rudy van der Slaar again, and he's describing the pre-war Belgian state response to communism, but you can just as easily apply it to the situation after liberation. Quote, in both Belgium and other countries, the bourgeois state defended itself against the communist self-proclaimed aim of taking power by force if need be, by simultaneously strengthening its repressive apparatus and by adapting it, read diluting, through the introduction of universal suffrage and social laws. Once the crisis of the First World War was over, those who had to be forced to accept social and political democratization against their will saw communism as the main enemy in their attempts to turn back the tide of history. Professional anti-communists were thus able to use these elements in their struggle against any form of social change. The task mobilized only a small fraction of those who defended reactionary ideas, but the architects of anti-communism were still close to the center of political, economic, and social power in Belgium. The Belgian establishment wasn't just fixated on anti-communism. Um, 
it was also spooked by the influence of these far-right resistance networks. Although in truth, you know, the establishment probably had more in common with them than with the communists, but still this talk of Flemish nationalism and secession, it ran totally counter to this desire, this project of national unity. So the Belgian state therefore had to scramble to appropriate the Allied victory and integrate the entire resistance into the post-war order if it was to avoid what it saw as a delegitimization of its own power. This is Legru again, quote, Most of Belgium was liberated in a matter of days, and the government of national unity formed three weeks later included communist and resistance ministers in the government team newly returned from London. The symbiosis of traditional forces in Belgian politics incarnated in the London government and the new radicalism of the resistance was short-lived. Insurmountable mutual distrust deep political division in Belgian society, and a particular lack of political skill and national stature on both sides led to an open and occasionally even violent conflict over disarming the resistance and integrating it into the regular army. So they decided, did the Belgian government, that the resistance networks posed a significant threat to its existence. And so they passed a law in November of 1944 that all resistance arms and munitions had to be handed in to the authorities within uh, two weeks. And this led to protests that were spearheaded by communist resistance fighters and trade unionists. And it these de degenerated into running gun battles with police in Brussels. And the police ended up just firing indiscriminately into the crowds. I believe they injured around 50, 55 people. And it's reckoned that it was only the presence of allied troops that prevented an all-out massacre here. And in support of the new Belgian government, Winston Churchill then had MI6 spread rumours of a communist plot to overthrow democracy and run smear campaigns against especially popular Belgian resistance figures, left-wing ones really. This was in line with other allied Anglo-American operations against the organized left and leftist resistance groups across Europe. You know, nothing strange here. So you have this anti-royalist coalition of socialists and liberals and communists that formed in opposition to a pro-monarchy Catholic party, which was the Christian Social Party. And that advocated leniency for collaborators. And they also wanted a restoration of the king to the throne uh, because Leopold had been deported to Germany after Belgium was liberated, which only fueled the rumours that he was a collaborator, which, I mean, he was, basically. And this ill will towards Leopold had actually begun to subside by 1945 or so. And in fact, public sentiment swung in the opposite direction, if not to more support for Leopold, then at least more support for the, the monarchy, you know. Now, for an idea of how weird and complicated politics can be in Belgium and the inertia this has engendered in the political process there. The coalition government of 1945 to 1946, that was formed after the Piello government, which was exhausted from exile in London and the endless factionalism and infighting abruptly resigned just four months after it returned from the UK. So then Achiel van Acker, who's the Socialist Party leader, he formed another coalition government. This lasted a year. 
the royal question and these endless debates over the role of the monarchy in post-war Belgium, it was draining energy and momentum from every government that tried to uh, take control of the wheel, you know. This period of time, it was so farcical that when Piello had initially tried to resign from office, the lack of a king meant that there was nobody to accept the resignation. So the entire political system basically ground to a halt, you know. Uh, and then the Catholic Christian Social Party won the 1946 election. But there's a little footnote to that that we'll get to a bit later on. So in 1950, the Catholics and the Liberals formed a new coalition, and they held a referendum on the royal question. Let's solve it once and for all. And at the same time, the communists were pretty much trounced, you know, pushed back to the margins. Now, this is from the Royal Institute of International Affairs, March of 1950, quote, Voting in the referendum is compulsory and is to take place on March 12th. The quarrel has now reached such dimensions and become so complex, dragging so much extraneous matter in its train, that some of the main points tend to be overlooked, while the same facts are used and distorted to prove both heroism and guilt. Although a settlement is desired by all, except perhaps by the communists, everybody wants the question to be answered in his own fashion. So while only a minority of French-speaking Belgians voted yes to restoring the king, the monarchists won out about 58% of the vote. The Republican side of the divide refused to countenance the idea and a genuine insurrectionary sentiment began to spread through Belgium and the threat of a civil war became very real. So Leopold, you know, aware that the monarchy was at risk of destruction and possibly the state itself, he just abruptly resigned and handed the crown off to Baudouin. The monarchists had won. Again, Rudy van der Sla, uh, summing up the situation in Belgium as the Cold War began in earnest. Quote, Anti-communism went into temporary retreat during Nazi occupation, but after the defeat of Germany, it became even more virulent than it had been before the war. The Cold War led to new heights of anti-communism, both in Belgium and throughout the Western world. Anti-communism became a reflection of the struggle between the two countries which had emerged from the war as superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States. The new conjuncture gave many anti-communist elements in Belgium a new lease of life and enabled them to return to their old activities. For their part, the communists left the government in 1947 and thus returned to the marginal position they had always occupied in Belgian society. This passage gets at one of the great paradoxes of the story that we're going to be telling in the next few months. Communist influence in Belgium declined sharply within a, a couple of years of the end of World War II, and yet paranoia and rabid, ferocious opposition to it only kept shooting up, you know, amongst the Belgian security establishment, the Belgian business establishment, the Belgian establishment in general. So put a pin in all that. And it's here, at this part in the story, where we meet Julien Lahal, who is the president of the Belgian Communist Party.
Lahal was born in Seran in Wallonia in 1884. He was from a working class family, became involved in union activity very early on. Uh, he was known as a charismatic firebrand type who never showed any fear of the cops or the bosses when he was leading a picket. He was fired from multiple jobs for organizing strikes and union membership drives. And then he was arrested and sent to prison in 1913 during a mass strike for universal suffrage. This was for the crime of insulting those who work. Now I tried to dig into what this means and as far as I can tell, his mere presence on a picket line and his attempts to educate workers about their own exploitation, that was considered to be insulting and disrespectful towards them. Go figure. So when World War One broke out, he joined the, and this is a motherfucker of a pronunciation here, so hopefully I can stick it. Wait a minute. He joined the Corps Autocanon Mitreluses, and this was a fairly elite unit. They were loaned out to the Tsar by King Albert to support the war effort on the Eastern Front. Now, the corps were composed of units of armored cars that were equipped with guns and cannons. It's kind of a very early anticipation of the armored Humvee column, I suppose. Now, this unit was caught in the middle of the fighting between the Bolsheviks and the Ukrainian nationalists when the Russian Revolution happened. And thereafter, they wound up going on an odyssey across Europe and into Asia, and they fetched up on the borders of China. This is a pretty wild story, and someday we could do an episode about it, uh, but we don't really have space for it here. But it's interesting to note that the corps was divided by what its members saw during the Russian Revolution when they arrived at the Chinese border. Some of them split off and joined the White Army because they were looking for adventure and the chance to kill communists and Jews. Others, guys like uh, Julien Lahau, they became lifelong Leninists and they returned to Belgium more committed than ever to class revolution. And when he returned to Belgium, uh, he quickly became known as the King of Solidarity, you know. Uh, now, this is from Solidaire. I've had to tweak this passage a little bit because the English translation was not the best, so it's possible I've got some words wrong here or I've not taken the meaning the right way, but I think you'll get the gist. Quote, Back in Sedan in 1921, a strike broke out at Ugre Marihe, a steel company in Seran that was later taken over by Cockerill and then by ArcelorMittal. Lahaut took the lead against the advice of his socialist comrades. This led to a break with the leadership of the Belgian Workers' Party, of which he was a member. Uh, it was a very hard and long conflict. After seven months of deadlock, the Trade Union Federation reduced strike pay. The BWP, which controlled the union, wanted to remain in government and take into account its liberal and Catholic partners. In this way, the party was betraying the working families who had made great sacrifices during the strike. Lahaut remained loyal to them and organized the care of children and families that supported the strikers. Lahaut was arrested again. The BWL exploited his absence to undermine the strike and write derogatorily about it in the trade union press. Lahaut was expelled from the Central of Metal Workers, the union. He would not be officially rehabilitated until 2010 by Francis Gomez, chairman of the MWB Liege. So, you know, as a, a fuck you to the haters, uh, Lahaut became a member of the new Communist Party of Belgium, and eventually he would become the leader. He was popular. 
I think I've made that clear by now, but yeah, he was popular and he became an elected councillor in Sedan in 1926 and he held this seat until he died. He was naturally an outspoken anti-fascist and he oversaw purges of Nazi and fascist sympathizers from the Communist Party. In 1935, he protested the presence of Mussolini's Italy at the Brussels World Fair. He also organized and led food convoys to the anarchists and socialists in Spain during the Civil War. He had a very astute understanding of fascism and how fascism could adapt and evolve and infiltrate. Uh, so as a result, he was alert to the unique forms that it could take in a place as divided by regionalism as Belgium. And then under Nazi occupation, he was arrested multiple times for subversion. He led the strike of the 100,000. And yeah, under Nazi occupation, he was arrested multiple times for subversion. Uh, he led the strike of the 100,000. And he was eventually deported to the Mauthausen concentration camp. So once Belgium was under Nazi occupation, Lahart's analysis of the situation, it led him to conclude that resisting the Nazis alone wasn't enough, because wherever Germany had invaded, it had found wealthy industrialists and business leaders that were willing to support it financially and politically. So the bosses, in other words, were also collaborators, and therefore, the struggle against Nazism was another form of class struggle. So it follows that just defeating the Nazis alone, it wasn't enough to eradicate fascism because the people who collaborated with it, the people who bankrolled it, they would still be around in Belgium and Europe after the war ended without a revolutionary working class movement to overthrow them. And this is at once a very insightful and a very dangerous thing to say out loud in a place like Belgium at the end of World War II. And this brings us, finally, back to August the 11th, 1950, when Baudouin took his constitutional oath of office during a joint session of Parliament. That morning, someone in Parliament belonging to the pro-monarchist side of the aisle threw a smoke grenade at the socialist benches, and understandably, this did very little to ease tensions. And while Baudouin was taking the oath, someone in the communist faction yelled, Vive la République, or Long Live the Republic, from the Brussels Times, quote, What actually happened is not completely clear. According to the memoirs of Prime Minister Gaston Eskins, um, published in 1993, it was Communist Party member Henri Grenier who shouted support for a republic. However, it is now believed to have been his brother Georges Grenier. Eskins added that after a long applause in support of Royal Prince Baudouin, the cry was repeated by Julien Lahart. Anyway, it is clear that Lahart was not the only one who shouted the displeasing words to the Royalist supporters during the Earth. It would take almost a year, on 17th of July 1951, for Baudouin to be coronated as King of the Belgians, a day after the official abdication of King Leopold III and after he had reached the legal age according to Belgian law. Now, while this sounds relatively innocuous, you know, just a little light dissent vocalized, remember what we said about conditions in Belgium at this time and how the whole fucking country seemed to be on a tinderbox because of the royal question and the lingering distrust and paranoia 
of the Nazi years, we are told that someone on the pro-monarchy side of the aisle who was in parliament that day heard the communists yelling Republican slogans and decided to take action. They also decided that Lahal, as the leader of the communists, was to blame for this act of disrespect to Baudouin from the Brussels Times again. Quote, date, 18th of August, 1950, place, the town of Seren, in the Walloon province of Liege. Two men are walking along Rue de l'Evêque. They ask someone in the street where Julien Lahart lives. Lahart has moved house the year before, further up in the same street. They want to be sure about where he lives now. A car is parked in front of his former house. The driver steps out, looks at the house, and drives on. The neighbor leads the two men up to Lahart's new house. Around 9.15, in the glimmer of streetlights, they approach the modest row house. Lahart's, wife's, Lahart's wife answers the door. They ask to speak with him. She leaves them at the open door to get her husband, who is just finishing dinner. He is left with the visitors, and by the time she returns to the kitchen, she hears gunshots. She runs to the entrance and sees her husband has fallen with his head against the pavement. The two men run to a car on the other side of the street and shoot twice towards the house. Julien Lahart, the 65-year-old chairman of the Belgian Communist Party, had been murdered. By the time the police arrived, at half past nine, the house was crowded with neighbours and passerby. Lahart's body had already been moved to the kitchen and examined by two doctors. He was struck by four bullets, with the one in his abdomen proving lethal. At 10 o'clock, the public prosecutor's office is dismayed to see that people had picked up bullets or kicked them around the house. His funeral on the 22nd of August was attended by 150,000 people, as reported by the state police, the gendarmerie. The simple memorial plate attached to his house refers to his murderers as the enemies of the people. His killers were never formally identified nor brought to justice. After 20 years, in 1970, the statute of limitations was reached. Two years later, after investigations by four subsequent examining magistrates, the case was officially closed. Lahout left a widow, but no children. Now, the Communist Party newspaper immediately identified a surviving faction of Rexist operatives as the group behind the assassination. The Rexist Party was in some respects very similar to the other right-wing political forces active in Belgium before and after World War II. Uh, it was Catholic, we've said that, it was corporatist, and it believed that Belgium could only unify under the leadership of a strong monarch. It was founded and led by Léon de Grille, who was a journalist turned right-wing militant. It was actually on the decline on the eve of World War II before the Nazi invasion sort of gave it a new lease of life. It was based in Wallonia and it was a kind of mirror image of the Flemish National Union, you know, which was another right-wing outfit. And just like the Flemish group, the Rexists also collaborated with the Nazis and Leon de Grel served in the Walloon Legion of the Waffen-SS. So whereas we can point to other parts of the Belgian establishment, and we can say they were making cynical, hard-headed, pragmatic decisions to collaborate with Germans out of self-preservation. Guys like de Grelle were true believers. And by the time of Lahart's assassination, de Grelle had been convicted of treason in absentia and he was living in exile in Spain. And he would still exert a powerful influence on the fascist underground across Europe and especially in Belgium. So make a note of his name because he will be coming back. Now, from the beginning, 
a concerted effort was made to connect the confrontation in Parliament to the assassination and elide any deeper motivations. And the purpose was, in a sense, to blame the communists and even Lahout himself for the assassination, uh, you know, to suggest they'd provoked it. And this line served a useful disciplinary function for anyone else who might be thinking about criticizing the monarchy too robustly. And it also helped to distract attention from the sheer convenience of the assassination for a number of vested interests. Because Lahout was extremely popular and he was incredibly skilled as a politician and an orator. And he was probably the only communist leader in Belgium with the profile and the charisma to actually take the party to the commanding heights of Belgian politics once again. So his murder left the party in chaos and it hastened the end of their time as a genuine force in the country. The goal then was to get people to believe that at most, Lahout's death was the work of a handful of right-wing cranks. And it also served another purpose, a strategy, if you will. A strategy to cause tension. So yeah, the investigation, it bumbled along for 20 years, as you said, it went nowhere. And then the statute of limitations was reached and it was dismissed. But it was widely believed from the beginning that whoever killed Lahaut was part of Belgium's right-wing monarchist movement and possibly had protection from high places. And in 1985, a book called The Murder of Lahaut re-examined the case and recontextualized the murder. This book was written by our pal Rudy van der Sla and Etienne Verhoyen. And as well as helping to keep the story alive, it also focused on the anti-communist networks in Belgium. And 1985 is a pretty significant year to be releasing a book on this subject, as we are going to see. So according to the murder of La Haupe, the identity of his killer was well known in the Belgian spook fascist underworld. The authors also discovered it, but they promised his family not to reveal it because the guy was dead and he couldn't defend himself at that point. However, in 2002, a Belgian senator called Vincent van Quickenboon decided to look into the Lahau assassination again and he discovered the likely killer's identity for himself. His name was Francois Goussens, and Goussens was an insurance salesman and a royalist resistance veteran who lived in the town of Hal, uh, just southwest of Brussels. He'd been pseudonymized as Adolf in Van der Sla's book. So Van Quickenborn found a copy of the original Le Hal case file at the National Archives, and he set to work. And he pieced the original police investigation together and he discovered a pattern of incompetence and buried leads and evidence tampering and tip-offs being ignored. This was the same pattern van der Sla had described in his 1985 book and it is the same pattern that we are going to find again and again as we work through this series and discuss other X-Files. So far from being this impenetrable mystery... Van Quickenborn discovered that Lahout's murder could have been solved very early had the political will to do so existed. Goussens was the leader of what has been called a commando unit. 
um, of killers. It also included relatives of Jan-Nicolas Deville, who was the mayor of Havre, and one of them was his son, in fact, Eugene, who admitted in 2002 to firing some of the shots that killed Le Havre. Eugene's nephew, uh, Stein, he became a playwright and a director, and he actually wrote a play about the murder based on the family stories he'd heard growing up. I mean, that's how much of an open secret it was. Van Quickenborn and Van der Slaar, they both concluded the plot was sponsored by this murky far-right monarchist network with connections to the Belgian security establishment. And these sponsors had taken note of the willingness of the communists to throw down with the cops back in 1945. Do you remember that shootout at the protest? So they had probably been hoping to provoke a violent response from them with the assassination. And this was in, in the hope that it would justify an authoritarian clampdown on the communists. This is a textbook strategy of tension. And for a sense of how spooked the Belgian state still is by the Le Havre case and the web of intrigue that surrounds it, consider that although the Senate approved Van Quickenborn's request to open the case in 2008, the government refused to release any funds for the investigation. And subsequently, it stalled out while alternative sources of finance were tracked down, which eventually arrived when the Walloon government came through with the money. So, some historians, uh, Professor Emmanuel Gerard, Francois Muller, and Wiedekind Derrida, they led the research and they poured through newly discovered documents and files and they uncovered so much intriguing evidence of institutional malfeasance, shall we say, that they were granted additional funds to continue their work in 2012. This is from the Brussels Times reporting, in summary, on their findings, quote, their meticulous historical research has painfully exposed the combined efforts between public and private security services to effectively sabotage the investigation into the murder of Julien Lahau. And there it is again, private security firms, private networks, private services. What does this mean exactly? Well, the investigation turned up another name connected to the Lahau case. We mentioned the strategy of tension earlier, and we've alluded to the involvement of spooks and fascists in the Lahau murder and Belgian anti-communism more broadly. So here, I'm just going to throw it out there. I believe that the assassination of Julien Lahau is the first concrete example of a gladio operation in Belgium. And I say this based on all the information I've just presented to you. The fact that communists were banned from public administration roles in Belgium shortly after the assassination and the presence of one André Moyen, the name that I was referring to just now. Before we get into him, first, just some notes. Paul-Henri Spach who was the leader of the Socialist Party. He was the Prime Minister of Belgium from 1947 to 1949. This is that footnote that I mentioned earlier about the election. Because although the Christian Social Party had won the most votes in that election, the Socialists were able to form a minority government with the support of the Communists. Now, Spark would go on to play an influential role in what became the European Union. He would also serve as the Secretary General of NATO. 
1948, Spark gave the Belgian security service permission to engage with the CIA and MI6 to develop and implement a stay-behind network in Belgium. And for more information on the stay-behind networks, see the Operation Gladio episode. Um, now, the Belgian Security Service is the second oldest intelligence agency in the world after the Vatican's, believe it or not. And historically, it operated with very little government oversight. And from its inception, it was fixated on suppressing socialist and communist and trade union movements. Belgium had two official stay-behind networks that are recognized anyway, SDRA8 and STC, or MOB, as it's also known. Now, as we're going to find out during this series, like with every other country where Gladio took root, it's unhelpful to think of the stay-behinds as being rigidly organized structures that were in any meaningful sense accountable to the rule of law or democratic oversight. SDRA8 and MOB were more like the central axes around which orbited constellations of public and private security services, underground fascist paramilitary groups, organized crime outfits, dirty politicians, corrupt aristocrats and businessmen, arms dealers, drug runners, and bought and paid for civil servants and other representatives of the upper world of state and financial institutions. The wall separating NATO secret armies from these other entities was porous from the very beginning, and it only grew more so as this much-hyped possibility of a Soviet invasion diminished and members of the stay behind networks realized they could put their training and their connections to use crushing domestic leftist opposition and getting that back in the process and crucially and this is something I, I want to drive home here it's also unhelpful to think of Gladio as anything particularly new you know in the context of the early years of the Cold War don't forget that this idea of stay-behind armies grew out of the methods the British had developed in Northern Ireland and India to deal with insurgencies back in the early 20th century. I think it's better to look at the stay-behinds, especially the one in Belgium, as a refinement of clandestine anti-communist counterinsurgency networks that had already existed all over Europe in some form since at least the Bolshevik Revolution, with antecedents going back even further. Gladio, then, was a new coat of paint on these pre-existing networks. You know, some better training and equipment, more sophisticated funding channels and better operational security, but that's it. It's the same old monster with a different face. And Belgium was especially crucial because here, at the end of World War II, it is still serving as a buffer state. It's still fulfilling its founding purpose to greater powers, you know, like the US, the UK, and NATO. So, André Moyen. Moyen was this far-right resistance veteran, and he was a fanatical anti-communist who'd worked as a freelance spook for the Belgian security services for decades, by the time the stay-behinds were being implemented. 
he was a very skilled counterintelligence operative and he had contacts in virtually every Belgian security and law enforcement agency, as well as the military and the government. And he was called in to consult and help set up SDR, AA and MOB because of his huge influence and contacts and expertise. Uh, he founded the Belgian anti-communist bloc as an adjunct to the Stay Behind Network. And Francois Goussens and other members of this commando unit that killed Lahau were members of the BACB. Uh, in fact, in the very early stages of the investigation, Goussens was immediately named as a person of interest and the Hal cops included a copy of his BACB membership card in their file on him and proof of his connection to Moyen. Somehow, this information was removed from the file by the time it reached the cops in Liege, which is where Moyen lived at the time. Moyen's reach was vast and extensive. He was sent on an assignment to Vietnam, um, Korea, Egypt, Morocco, and inevitably Congo. He was given so much leeway to conduct his operations as he saw fit that he was free to commit robberies, break-ins, burglaries, and assaults in the name of anti-communism. Now consider that he was so off the hook that the Belgian security service itself actually filed a complaint about his methods in the early 50s and his political protectors stepped in to squash it outright within a couple of weeks. Moyen's description of the stay behind in Belgium is very instructive and it gives us some idea of how Gladio agents thought of themselves and their operations. Uh, his concept of it is very much in line with what we've just described. He thought of it as this amorphous and hard to define influence that existed inside the Belgian establishment. And he referred to it alternately as the network or the synarchy. The synarchy is a particularly insightful term. It means joint or harmonious rule. And in Moyen's case, he'll have been using the word with French organizations like La Cagoule and the Vichy Elite of France in mind, both of which were also referred to at different times as synarchies. A synarchy is a secret group of powerful individuals that co-manage the state as they see fit in the interests of their elite class. So can we therefore describe Gladio as another manifestation of what Rudy van Doslaar has termed a class reflex. Moyen's concept of the stay behind armies also calls to mind the words of an Italian Gladio operative called Vincenzo Vinciguero, who said of Gladio, quote, the knowledge should by now be clear that there exists a real life structure, occult and hidden, with the capacity of giving a strategic direction to the outrages, it lies within the state itself. There exists in Italy a secret force parallel to the armed forces, composed of civilians and military men in an anti-Soviet capacity that is to organize a resistance on Italian soil against a Russian army. A secret organization, a super organization with a network of communications, arms and explosives and men trained to use them. A super organization which, 
lacking a Soviet military invasion, which might not happen, took up the task on NATO's behalf of preventing a slip to the left in the political balance of the country. This they did with the assistance of the official secret services and the political and military establishments. And consider also then where Moyen was finding the money to finance uh, the network, his synarchy. One of the Belgian anti-communist bloc's major donors was Brufina, which is the holding company of the Bank of Brussels. Brufina was an abbreviation of the Société Générale and its control of the Belgian economy and by extension the political process were so extensive that it has been described as a state within a state. Moyen also received financing from the Union Minière, which was a mining company with vast holdings in the Congo. Moyen was so useful to them that aside from keeping the BACB flush with cash, the Union Minière also paid Moyen to set up anti-communist operations in Congo to help effectively run a counterinsurgency against you know, Congo liberation movements. This led to the formation of what Mayen called the Crocodile Network. So, I think that about does it for our reintroductory episode to Belgium. But one final question I have is, if we are willing to look at Gladio in this way, as a fresh coat of paint on a pre-existing set of networks and methods and practices, adopted by a ruling elite to protect itself from you know, the, the burgeoning socialist movements of Europe, then is it possible that these networks, operating almost entirely in the dark with the full protection of the security establishment, is it possible then that they became so powerful and unaccountable that they eventually detached themselves from the state entirely and that they came to see themselves as an authority in their own right? And if they did, what were they capable of once they transcended those bounds? Next episode, we're going to discuss Belgium as an imperial power by looking at its role in Congo and the aftermath. But until then, and as ever, thanks for listening and don't get captured. February 3rd, 1959, Paris, the Associated Press. Quote, a blonde Romanian countess has been charged with lewd behavior with a teenage girl in a scandal known as the Ballet Roses. Countess Elizabeth de Pignef, 44, is the first woman accused in the investigation into wild parties at which young girls are rumored to have performed in the nude for prominent men. The countess is a friend of bald André Letroquier, one-armed 74-year-old former speaker of the French National Assembly, who is also under indictment. Le Troquier and two wealthy businessmen were charged with attacks on public decency. They denied the charges. The Countess, whose title is somewhat remote, is now a French citizen. 
She was arrested Monday night on a charge of lewd behavior with a person of the same sex less than 21 years old. She was released later to await trial and retained Le Troquier's lawyers. The scandal came to light after mothers of four teenage girls became suspicious about their daughter's ballet activities. Pierre Solou, 34, a former butcher boy who later served as an agent in France's counter-spy service, has been arrested as the organiser of the parties. Fjármannar hýðin er 